My guest this week is the men's fashion director of Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus, Mr. Bruce Pask. Bruce and I spoke about how he got into the fashion world and the experiences he's had along the way. From the stockroom of Paul Smith to working alongside Annie Leibovitz, Bruce climbed the ladder one rung at a time. He's the perfect example of American style and the nicest guy in the room. Here's my talk with Bruce Pask. Mr. Bruce Pask. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Um, Welcome to the offices of Bergdorf Goodman and Nemo Marcus. Yeah, it's beautiful, actually. It's huge. It's nice, and I like the natural light, and surrounded by, as you can see, stacks of magazines and books. Yeah. All fodder for inspiration. Right. Um, so you're kind of like menswear and fashion, like, legend status right now. Like, <laughs> I just, to, before we get too deep, like... To me, that you... sounds a little too. This is your life. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, you were basically always there before everyone else in every aspect. Hmm. Um, we'll talk about Cargo later, but mm-hmm. you were at Cargo Magazine, which I think was mm-hmm. one of the best magazines ever. Thank you. Um, you know, every brand, you, it was always like I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was on you first. Um, <laughs> That's a nice thing to say. And, I don't know that I can own that, but. Oh, we'll for sure. explore it more. We'll talk. Do you remember? We're not gonna a quick sidebar, but do you remember that uh, Dries coat you had with the fur collar I on the side? I do indeed. Okay, I rest my case. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but every single time I've, uh, you know, like when a lot of people try to tell me the, the people that they like and the, the style that they like, it's mm-hmm. always a photo of you. And I think your mm-hmm. your style in general is a is always a fantastic mix of new. A little bit of old, sometimes vintage. I mean, I think you've had that helmet laying denim jacket for like... Oh my like, gosh. Right? Yeah, there's a date on the inside of it because it was obviously from the day when yeah. he was there. I think it's 95. And that's awesome. I think so. Maybe it's a little earlier than that. I can't remember. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of... It's interesting because the way I look at it, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm grateful for the... for people's kindness and comments. I think it's a really nice thing. I don't put a huge amount of consideration into what I wear. I mean, it really is sort of, you know, 10 different versions of a uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the denim jacket obviously has become like a, a thing. For me, it's become just this staple that I, you know, wear a lot. But I think part of, I guess, more people's recognition of me as I guess a person in the business and in the industry and what I wear is just because we happen to be at the right place at the right time. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that I happen to be in an industry and in a business that all of a sudden became a part of the cultural zeitgeist. Right. You know, we go to Pity Woma, we go to the fashion shows. I attend them because that's my work. That's my business. And I happen to be a part of this uh, group that attends these shows. And all of a sudden they became like, uh, very interesting to people that not out not involved in the business and they were being documented and photographed and you know at the beginning of that obviously with scott schumann mm-hmm. who sort of started it off with his uh, i guess um, documentary kind of style photography at pity womo and we we're just there doing our thing yeah and then it you know obviously build momentum and more photographers joined and had their interpretations of it but uh, you know, we, it, for me, it's just like we just happen to be there. I oh. mean, it's not like there's any, you oh, know, so you people don't... searching us out. We just happen to be in an arena that I think is now, and I'm grateful for this, but that the public is very interested in. Right. I mean, so you're telling me that you don't wake up and you're like, how can I wear the best look to get my picture taken today? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, geez. <laughs> no, but it's interesting <laughs> to talk about that because I do find it fascinating um, that you know, fashion necessarily moves forward. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I wake up often and something that I'm really into for a long time, all of a sudden doesn't feel right. And whether it's a sixth sense or whether it's an intuition, but you know, like, like we can say, for example, now, like I'm really involved in proportion. It's really compelling to me. Like, uh, we've been in a very skinny, trim, cropped, tight fitting world for 15 right. years. You know, Tom Brown, I think his first collection that was eye-opening and, and groundbreaking, you know, kind of reassessing that kind of 60-sack suit in a very kind of hyper-idealized proportion was almost 15 years ago. Oh my God, and right. when we saw that, 
that was a shocking visual. Yeah. Like these, you know, high water pants and, you know, short jackets. But as, you know, I'm grateful to say Bergdorf Gimlin was the first retailer to carry the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I was certainly a fan of the store that I wasn't involved in the store at that point. But um, that was quite shocking. And then as the eye of the public, certainly early adopters got used to that, and started wearing it themselves, you know, it certainly expanded the reach of this aesthetic that we have now been in for a very, very long time. Right. I mean, men's, men's wear in general moves very incrementally and very slowly. Right. Um, and, and I think in, in a nice way that where the nuances become very vital and very, um, you know, compelling and interesting, those are things that change. But I think when, we've been in an aesthetic that's been that established for such a long time. I think necessarily we need to kind of shift it. And just all of a sudden, like proportion is really compelling. Yeah. Like having wide, wide pants or having oversized shirts that kind of recall, you know, Yoji Yamamoto and, and, uh, come to Garçon, like a little bit of an eighties kind of Japanese fashion moment where it is about design and proportion in an, sort of exaggerated way and mm-hmm. you know we see it first on the runway and also you know people going to the fashion shows but right like i'm compelled by uh things that are uh interesting and and you know i, I talk about intuition because i think those of us in the business you know we latch on to things that are compelling um and different because it's our job you know it's our sensitivity right and we have to be aware of, of where things are moving and, and how we're feeling about things. And this is a very long way around of no, how no, we start okay. the conversation about talking about being in the right place at the right time and being in a business that people are interested in. But um, what I want to come back to about that, this conversation started about kind of street photography. So this whole, um, you know, kind of Peter Womo, Pity Womo uh, kind of street style the thing that I do find compelling about it is, you know, uh, I, my fashions have changed. My interests in what I wear have changed. And it's very slight, but it's a maybe a much more quiet aesthetic. Like mm-hmm. I think designers like Craig Green that is, you know, really inspired by, you know, utilitarian and workwear and shape. Mm-hmm. Like those things are being, uh, they're very compelling to me these days. And so now I feel like it's very minimal. And so a lot of times we walk by and people put down their cameras. <laughs> it's not so visually interesting, which I do think is funny because I think they are interested in aesthetic that is more maximalist. And okay. I think we're approaching times that are, that are moving along. And we're, uh, I think if we're being honest with ourselves and what we want to be wearing rather than, as you say, wake up in the morning and what kind of be photographed in. Yeah. I think we're moving into a more considered, quiet, um, in, you know, in this kind of fashion context, because we certainly um, have to include in that, you know, athletic and infi- inspired clothing and streetwear. And those are very, very, um, you know, graphic and logo driven. And, you know, we can't forget Gucci and Valentino, which are also really maximalist. But I guess it's more of a personal thing for me where I'm really interested in this kind of more uh, sedate aesthetic. Yeah. Personally. Well, no, that's fine. I mean, and we'll we'll get into that. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, that was a long segue. No, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> You're good. Um, I want to go back. So, where are you originally from? We'll, we'll go. We'll go a little bit to the beginning. We'll kind sure. of jump around a bit. Sure, here. sure, sure. Um, I was born upstate New York. Oh, so you're New York guy. Like, yeah, but all the way. I mean, I guess in a very, very. We were here very few years before we moved out west. So I, be, I was uh, kind of raised in Arizona in a little town called Yuma. Oh, okay. So we lived there when I was in first grade. So I consider myself from Arizona, truly. Right, right. And, you know, schooled there. And then after high school, went back to school and um, to college in Virginia. And then kind of was East Coast bound after that. So you kind of just migrated towards New York? It always kind of felt more like my natural context. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, were you always into to fashion? Or did you have, you know some other passion and then you kind of fell into it no it's funny because i I, you know i think about it when asked by people and and it wasn't a huge consideration about it i mean i know we were very aware of what we were wearing i mean obviously our economics were very very you know tight we weren't you know we we weren't wealthy you know it was working class family 
there was not a lot of extra money to roll around. I have had a job since I've been 12. Like I had a paper route and then I worked at a fast food restaurant, which I did love, by the way. Um, I worked two jobs in college, so I've always been working. But, you know, aesthetics and fashion were always kind of a consideration. Um, I was in high school during the heyday of Lisa Birnbach's preppy handbook. So for okay. us, like that was everything. Um, you know, we were like my friends and I in high school, you know, we were literally looking at colleges that were mentioned in that because that for us was the aspiration. Because I also think growing up in the desert, it was so other. Right. Like, you know, out West, it's very new. Like there's not a lot of aged buildings in these, you know, in the towns of Arizona, you know, in the territories as we yeah. call them, yeah. you know, and that I, you know, I went to a school in Virginia, the college of William and Mary was founded in 1693. And that to me just felt like so historic. Right. Um, and so that everything around that was compelling to me. And, and as much as that fashion was really interesting, it was about the aesthetics of the environment the school environment and, and aesthetic was really important to me. Like it was something I, I really wanted to go to a, like a cliche looking college. Okay. Like it is Ivy covered. It is brick. It is in colonial Williamsburg. It doesn't get more visually collegiate than that. I mean, obviously the considerations for academics were first and foremost. So it was a school that also had a great liberal arts as well as a business school. For sure. So I was a little bit yin yang in that I was studying economics and art history. Okay. Which is sort of, I think, always been a through line in my career where I've always been a creative that's a pragmatist as well. And, and working at a store like Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus is almost like the perfect kind of uh, result of that, like being in a business that's utterly creative, but founded on, you know, results. And pragmatic you know pragmatic things about like business sure. and, and so i do feel like it's my career sort of led into place it feels utterly natural right for me so and but before you were at bergdorf you were at sure. a couple pretty big special places so you're at the times which we'll talk about sure but the thing my first interaction with you um was when you were working at cargo magazine mm -hmm. and I, i'll just want to rant about it for 10 seconds because <laughs> I loved that magazine. I have issues saved of that magazine. Mm. Um, it was the perfect blend of like tech and fashion. Mm -hmm. And it was cool because it put those together. Um, I mean, I feel like you have Wired on one side and then you have GQ, but Cargo is like right in the middle of those. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very good assessment, I think. Yeah. And it, it was just everything I wanted. And I, I mean, I mean, I think that might have been a tagline on one of the covers <laughs> at one point. Everything you want. <laughs> um, but you were, you were there for a, a bit, right? Yeah. I mean, I, what um, was your role there? Yeah, I was the fashion director of Cargo, Ariel Foxman, uh, who mm -hmm. uh, has since gone on to publishing, you know, is the editor-in-chief of InStyle, and he's now gone into uh, a digital retailing. Um, I worked, I grew up in magazines. Like, I mean, I moved to New York and, you know, it's sort of one of those things where I got a job out of the back of the village voice. Oh, you serious? Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> like the only, I think consideration I made when I was going through school is I wanted to make sure I was studying something that I really enjoyed. And that was certainly art history, but I was also fascinated by economics. So those right. were the two, uh, fields of study that I was involved in. Um, the only kind of decisive measure that I was very cognizant of is I know, I, I knew I was so practical that if I learned how to type that I would rely on that as a career vocation. So I decisively didn't learn how to type. Okay. Because I knew that I would end up in an office because I was so practical and I knew I had to go make a living. And, and so I didn't know how to type. So when I graduated or, or in summers in school, like one summer I'd got a job working at the Gap on okay. Wisconsin Avenue in DC. Cause I was also, um, doing an internship at a museum cause I was really interested in museum studies at that point. And then the next summer when I graduated, uh, college, I got a job working at a spree, which is also on Wisconsin Avenue, but felt like, yeah. a, you know, a little bit more glamorous. And it was again in the eighties. So that was sort of like a thing. Um, the Esprit sweatshirt. Exactly. Yeah. And then moved to New York with friends and was going to pursue a postgraduate degree. 
but, you know, how to get a job and was looking in the back of the Village Voice and there was a store that had just opened on Fifth Avenue and they were advertising for, you know, like kind of a stock boy. And that's how I ended up being the stock boy in the basement of Paul Smith on Fifth Avenue. That was my first kind of real job in the city. Oh, wow. And so I started sort of back in retail. Also, I want to mention my mother growing up, she had a shoe store in Yuma. So it was a children's shoe store. So we grew up going to a couple of shoe shows with her. I, I really remember attending these conventions. Wow. Yeah, as a kid. And she was utterly um, inspiring in that she was always interested in our opinions and curious for our thoughts. And I never mm-hmm. felt like um, she didn't take them entirely seriously. I thought she was very always like, what do you guys think? Do you like it? I and, mean, you know, we were just kids, but, you know, obviously it was a kid's shoe store. So we were sort of a, a perfect focus group, I guess you could say. We were her audience. Right. Um, and so I, you know, had this retail background from working in high school and, and at my mother's shop. And so then coming to New York and getting into retail and then moved into magazines almost directly after working at Paul Smith. Um, Jim Moore and the team from GQ would visit the showroom there um, mm-hmm. to look at the collection and pull for photo shoots. And uh, at one point they told somebody I was working with, they were looking for an assistant and I interviewed for the job and then was gratefully hired. And so started as an assistant at GQ. Wow. Oh, so you were there first. I was, that was my first magazine job and I was there for about nine years. I worked my way up, um, you know, from an assistant booking the clothing in and out of the, out of what we call like the closet, the cupboard. Mm -hmm. And it's how I learned about clothes. You know, I wasn't on shoots at that point. I was, you know, like the newest person in the department. So I, you know, was writing up clothing coming in and out. And that's how I learned about designers and fibers and fabric content and, and garments and what they were called and why. And, um, and it was really like, postgraduate school and working with Jim Moore and that team was really, really vital. And it was like, you know, graduate work. Um, and, you know, I became an, an, an associate editor after that and then was traveling with Jim as his food, uh, shooting assistant for a couple of years before I became a, a, an associate editor. So assisted him on, on shoots for maybe three or four years and, you know, learned everything about being on set and working with celebrities and working with photographers and, having a point of view about fashion, but also knowing how to navigate a photo shoot and how to get the kind of photographs you want out of the people involved in the collaborative nature of that business. And um, so ended up being there for about 10 years. And then, yeah, I think about nine. And, and then I um, decided to leave and went and opened an office and had an agent and did freelance styling for a few years and worked. Interesting. And it was interesting because I was... For me, it was a decisive choice because I, I really wanted to look at fashion in a different way. And, uh, you know, while I was still young and while my responsibilities were still minimal, because GQ was an amazing place to work. I really, really loved it. And um, so it was something that I kind of had to, to move toward just as a next step in my own kind of education. Right. So that's when um, Elizabeth Saltzman, who, you know, is a very great stylist and editor at Vanity Fair, um, sort of had an inkling that she, that, that I would, that Annie Leibovitz and I would kind of understand each other. And so she introduced us because, you know, her take on fashion is very, very intellectual and it's very, um, I think grounded in reality. She's not interested in, you know, look 22 from Saint Laurent. Like she's really like, what's the story? What's the narrative? What's the clothing about? What's the character? Mm. And so that was sort of a big break for me, Elizabeth introducing me to Annie. And so I worked with Annie on most of her commercial and magazine work for Vanity Fair Holy. for a few years. Um, and it was really enlightening and amazing and incredible experience. And yeah, like we did those original Sopranos ad campaigns. I did those with her. So we, that's also where it worked into kind of styling, but also costume design. Right. Like, I mean, you can, you just can't buy this kind of education that you're getting here. True, 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 true. I mean, it's fantastic. Um, and so, you know, I was really, really lucky and grateful, but I, you know, also worked hard and, and yeah. continued to study in, in that way. And then um, kind of got called back to Condé Nast. Right. And R.L. Foxman was putting this magazine together and we interviewed and 
Um, he was working with Donald Robertson, who's now on, you know, kind of Instagram star, Donald Robertson, who's yeah. amazing. And so um, the three of us kind of built this magazine together, R.L. Foxman, Donald Robertson, and I. And uh, it was an amazing experience because it felt really expansive creatively. Um, James Truman, uh, you know, kind of picked Ariel and and I interviewed with him as well. And, and Ariel chose me to be kind of leading the fashion with that. And it it did feel kind of boundless. And we wanted to be irreverent and new and relatable. And and as you said, dealing with all of these things that were just interesting to men. And it was shopping. It was tech. It was cultural. Yeah. Um, the aesthetic and the visual language that Donald established was really, um, you know, kind of easily relatable. And, and we used tons of real guys. I mean, I do feel like we were one of the first magazines that really cast almost not an entirely, but in a very large way, just like regular people that we would find in New York or whatever location we were in. I feel like that was a big part of the relatability of the magazine. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that you guys did really well is um, at that time, it wasn't really cool to be a nerd. I'm air quoting nerd here. Okay. Um, that's funny. And so like, oh, oh, you like tech, you like gadgets, you're a nerd. You go over here. This is mm-hmm. your place. Cool people and fashion and all that other stuff were over here. And cargo is like this amazing olive branch. <laughs> and because, I mean, that's kind of how I felt when I was younger. I mean, I loved tech. I loved computers. I loved trying to build my own. Now, it wasn't like that, but like mm-hmm. I felt that I was in that world. But I loved wearing suits and ties and, and mm-hmm. you know, sweaters. And, yeah, I was reading the preppy handbook and, and, you know, going on message boards on the Internet to learn about this stuff. And so cargo was like the most personal and for me magazine that has hmm. ever been created it's so nice to hear that i mean it, it was much lamented when it went out of business it was sort of the first to fall in the kind of great magazine culling yeah um i mean it was very intentionally small d democratic i mean we wanted to speak to as many different people as we could and mm-hmm. that was really important to us and we also had an amazing team like i worked with incredible people uh, Miguel Namorado, who's fashion director of Interview now, Josh Peskowitz was on the team. Yeah. Um, you know, like Micah Johnson, amazing stylist now. Um, uh, Daniel O, who's gone into uh, more of a kind of a design community career. We had just like Matt Martin yeah. worked there. <laughs> so we had, we had a really amazing crew. Um, you know, we worked hard. We were also generating so much content because, you know, we were shooting, obviously it was a monthly and, you know, the pace was pretty crazy, but we really loved it. We yeah. really, really loved it. And Ariel was an amazing leader because we were just given this kind of uh, dictum to be just expansive. And also, like, what do people want? What are they interested in? What are we interested in? And, and let's really expand that kind of possibility. Yeah. And, like, cars didn't necessarily negate fashion which didn't necessarily negate tech you know it was like and or travel and i think for fashion the point of view is to show really um relatable clothing and looks but in kind of aspirational like environments or situations yeah and so that was sort of our um i guess aesthetic language Mm -hmm. but you know donald who you know has a very entertaining and 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 you know, heavily followed Instagram feed, you know, it was amazing kind of old school art director and that we would go, we'd meet, sit at his desk, Ariel, we would talk and he would draw out and storyboard these stories. Oh I've never God. really worked like that. And he would storyboard what the story was going to look like. And we would go and do that. And it was a really amazing way. It was like making these mini movies and doing the stills from them. Oh and so God. that's how we did it. He would literally draw the magazine and that way we knew like scale shifts and you know, what we wanted close-ups on and what is going to make a story interesting. You know, it wasn't about just going out and, and shooting and see what you come up with. It was very, very um, intentionally directed. Wow. Yeah, it was an amazing way to work. Yeah, I mean, and just for other listeners, that that's not the norm. It's definitely not common at all. And no. that's, it's usually <laughs> you're some, you know, photographer and then there's a bunch of shots and you bounce around and you kind of 
pull it together at the very end. You have some idea and some intention and it's discussed, but not exactly like down to the cropping and um, storyboard for sure. That's amazing. I love to travel, and I think I'm getting it down to a science. I grab a few dope outfits, some running clothes, toiletries, and I'm out the door. What do I pack it in? My away carry-on. I recently upgraded my flimsy duffel that gave me back pain and switched to a proper roller from away. It's made with a premium German polycarbonate that is super strong but ultra light. It's perfect for me, because I'm a little hard on my stuff. And thanks to those four 360 degree wheels my suitcase is on, I can zoom past everyone in the terminal and get straight to my gate. But my favorite part of my carry-on, it's that built-in USB charger. I can stop walking around like a clown looking for power and charge my iPhone with my Away carry-on. It's got enough juice to charge my iPhone up to five times. Right now, Away is giving Blammo listeners $20 off a suitcase. Just visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blammo and enter promo code Blammo at checkout. So go to the new site, pick out a carry-on, and get moving. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blammo. Um, so there you, you went to a couple other places, I think, but you ended up at the New York times, right? Yeah. So no, after a uh, cargo, uh, ended maybe I think after three years, I think we ended in three yeah. years and then, um, I moved, um, directly to the New York times oh, from okay. there. Yeah. 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 And I was, you know, really grateful for, um, Stefano Tonkis. Um, you know, we had known each other through the business for a long time. He was at Esquire. Right. Um, he'd moved to the New York Times and started the really, really amazing tea uh, magazine at the New York Times. And um, immediately after um, Cargo, I was, I was at the Times within a couple weeks, I think. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I was very grateful for it. Let me tell you. Yeah. You know, being a part of a magazine that's folded is not fun. No. And it was heartbreaking, too. I mean, we were so close to it. I mean, we started a magazine. It was, you know, we put it together, Ariel and Donald and I and our whole team. So it was, you know, really devastating to all of us. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it sounds like a very Pollyanna point of view, but like everything happens for a reason. Like when I look back at that, you know, the timing of that and moving to the times, had it been sooner or later than that, that opportunity may not have arisen. So as much as I was, you know, upset and, and really broken by the failing of cargo, mm-hmm. um, the opportunity at T magazine was really, um, expansive and opening and an, another yet amazing experience. And I, I am really grateful for that because having gone from, you know, to G, from GQ to Annie Leibovitz to cargo and then to <laughs> New York times, they all had That's these pretty impressive. very, <laughs> thanks. I mean, I was just working hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, they all had these very distinct and different points of views that were really informative and really helped, you know, add another component to the way that I look at clothing and menswear and, and aesthetics. And, and Stefano was really amazing in a magazine that was interesting that we didn't sell on the newsstand, so it wasn't necessarily... Uh, primary that we had an amazing cover image that was gonna you know with featuring a celebrity that everybody recognized because you know the i think the burden of oh that's a very good point a magazine on a newsstand is you have to get the the customer's attention so Mm -hmm. it's usually there's this element of recognition so you're usually shooting somebody that people are culturally aware of and so uh, you know t magazine is distributed to subscribers and um but subscribers that of the probably the most respected newspaper on earth. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't about them picking it up or not picking it up. They were going to receive it. So you really had this license to kind of make the most arresting or compelling visual image that you mm. wanted. And that was really freeing. And also interesting that, you know, the budgets are tight there. And that, for me, rather than becoming a constriction, it was really an expansive thing. Like, we can make... It almost added, um, it gave one license to be as creative as one could be. Interesting. Because I, I think when you're operating on a budget that is, is tight, you're forced to be incredibly resourceful, incredibly creative. And I found that utterly compelling and I really loved it. And the other thing that we learned there is we worked with a lot of collaborators. We didn't style all the stories in-house. We developed collaborations with 
you know, great stylists, um, Robert Rabensteiner, yeah, um, out of Italy, Serge Girardi out of Paris, who's one I think of one of the most brilliant men's stylists out there. Um, you know, we had you know amazing styles that we would collaborate with and come up with stories together, and and Stefano really taught me to, you know, really help direct and really be collaborative. But then when that idea is baked, they're going to go off into the world and create it. And it's not going to be what you would do, and it's not going to be what I would do, but nine times out of ten, it's going to be more compelling than what you would think. Mm. So it's this, uh, you know, comes back and he's like, you know, it's a little gift. You know, you, you put them out in the world with these ideas that you have discussed, so you have a, a, you know, a sort of a structure for it, but then each person's point of view really adds to that. You know, so I would style a story, Serge would style a story, Robert would style a story. And you would have these really distinct point of views that I think in the aggregate made the magazine really, really visually compelling because there were all these different visual identities. So you were, every story was unexpected to the reader. Right. Versus something, say like GQ, you have um, air quote, like the GQ look. Like yeah, it, it has a, to have this, this thread that goes through the sure. entire thing. And I think they're all different schools of publishing and I respect them all. I, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I think nobody produces a more beautiful magazine than GQ. You can see the work, you can see the expertise, you can see the production value, and that's, you know, the aesthetic of the magazine. And it's right. a very clear aesthetic. So it was interesting going from that and then to be working with Stefano at W and, or with Stefano, sorry, at T Magazine, who he's now at W, um, where the philosophy was just very different. Right. Um, and, it was just a really fascinating way to work. Yeah. And, you know, and thank you for being so generous with going through your story here. And so then you find your way to, I mean, you, you go from like the top of the top on every single job <laughs> that you're at. So you find your way to probably the most influential retailer, uh, especially in the United States, Bergdorf Goodman. And, you know, and you're the, the fashion or style director? I'm fashion director of Bergdorf fashion Goodman director. and now Neiman Marcus as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had been... Um, That's heavy. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's pretty great. I, yeah, I feel very fantastic. lucky, and I work really hard, and I enjoy every minute of it, I have to say. Um, I, have, I have a history at Bergdorf Goodman. You know, I, um, mm-hmm. One of the great things about working at the New York Times and T was it was not a monthly. We had one issue a season, so I was there on a contract, so I was able to do other projects which I thought was really um, just kind of a modern way of working. And also I think predated how the workplace is now, you know, where we're, you know, you work on multiple projects, the freelance kind of lifestyle I think is gained in momentum. It's all about 1099s now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so when I was there, I was, you know, obviously my dedication and and, um, loyalty was at, and to T Magazine and Stefano, but I was able to do these other projects. And um, the art director, creative director of Bergdorf Goodman, I met him, and they were at the moment looking for somebody to style their men's stories. And, and so um, I've had a history style in the men's magazine here for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Knew a lot of the people in the store and, and the buyers, and um, the opportunity arose. And it's sort of one of those things that was sort of always in the back of my mind. Like, I loved the store. It felt very personal to me over the course of the years. Um, and when the opportunity arose, it seemed like a very perfect fit. Right. And the, my president at the time, Josh Schulman, and I met, and I think we both recognized this is a special opportunity. At least for me, I absolutely recognized it as a really interesting step where I'd been in magazines my entire adult life. And it didn't seem to me as such a, drastic shift in skill set more just in context and environment i mean it's still about being deeply intuitive about menswear and where that's going and um what we're interested in what men are interested in and then um and shifting that context from magazine and, and kind of the inspiration involved in creating magazines that you're trying to make compelling and interesting to a reader and shifting that into a mag, uh, into a, a store, which is almost like creating content within the context of a store, and yeah. treating it very editorially, and and recognizing every opportunity as um, a moment to inspire a customer or 
intrigue a customer, even help help teach. I mean, every mannequin, you know, styling for me is such a part of my background. And, you know, working on outfits for the magazines is really important to me in creating the identity of the store. Because I think those are, every one of those is an opportunity to kind of help somebody walking in the store like, oh, wow, I love how that looks. I want to try that. Yeah. And they're all prescriptive opportunities. Yeah. And you are like a perfect billboard for Bergdorf Goodman too, because you know, a lot of, <laughs> thank you. No, I'm serious. But I'll, I'll get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a lot of style right now. I've in just in my opinion experience, it feels like it's in all these different corners, <laughs> right? So you have this, some people who are very like Americana kind of Southwest sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of Visvim, WRL sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And you have this other far corner and it's like Ninja, it's Rick Owens, it's Boris, it's, it's CCP. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you have people that are just kind of wearing suits. And so it's kind of all over the map. But you yourself, I mean, you're wearing a Atelier and Repair pants. You have a Montclair vest. You have like all these different sort of pieces mm-hmm. of this you know, the, the entire menswear ethos. It's eclectic. Yeah, it, but no, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people, um, especially men, maybe like men my age, like millennial men, they, you're so used to subscribing to more or less one thing. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to go and look and say, okay, yeah, I, I do like that Montclair vest. And, but wait, do I have to wear it head to toe? Wait, I don't know. Hmm. You know, and then finding just that one piece and then using that to build their wardrobe. And I think Bergdorf has always been a fantastic example of how to build wardrobe with pieces instead of buying a head to toe look. Oh, that's really nice to hear. I mean, it's something we work hard at. And again, it's, you know, with the team. I mean, we have a very small merchant team. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're all deeply involved in every kind of process of, you know, putting the assortments together in the store. And I'm, I'm grateful for that intimacy and that kind of camaraderie. And so it is absolutely a group effort. Um, I do think that, you know, being the fact that, you know, we're one store, I'm there almost every day when I'm in town, mm. you know, it's a very personal operation, you know, uh, and so we're able to kind of really treat it in this very kind of special way. And I do think styling these mannequins is something that I really will always enjoy. But I do think there are opportunities to help inform and to help also expand, to your point, like expand opportunities and, uh, you know, ways for guys to think about how they dress themselves. Yeah. I mean, I do think, you know, I think that we do have those guys that are very clear about their aesthetic and it may be very specific and head to toe. But I think um, most often you have guys that are just wanting to look at, at a cool piece that they love and how does that work with what I wear and mm-hmm. I'm looking for something new and I want to know how to integrate that into the wardrobe that I have. Yeah. Um, I guess organic is an overused word, but I, I feel like it should all feel organic. And I, I think it, when people ask me like, Oh my God, how do you come up with what you wear? And it, it sort of sounds a little arrogant to say like, Oh, I don't really think about it at all. This is all natural. But I do think it's like over. That's not arrogant by the way. That's I mean, fun. it That's just okay. sounds a little bit like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> Um, (laughs) you're all right. It's certainly years in the business. I've just become very clear about what I'm comfortable in and what the context is. You're, you're to just interrupt real quick. I think you, you're confident. You, you, I feel from what you, you know what you want to look like and you're very confident in who you are and all these, you know, different sort of looks. And, and to just jump back one second, it's not like necessarily different as in you say whom i love dearly nick wooster who has all these different sort of mm-hmm. looks that he can do you're very bruce pask and i think <laughs> if i say that to other people everyone knows like exactly what i'm talking about that's funny i mean i always kind of sit as almost like kind of cliche american like it's a very kind of cliche american like i mean you know patched khaki a yeah. desert boot flannel shirt gray flannel jacket i mean it, it's you know i find pieces that i'm interested in and i kind of you know bring it in but um it is i think it's certainly you know a hazard of the trade i mean that kind of confidence it's just like inevitable if you're surrounded by this you get to experiment where it's it's yeah. also just yeah it comes from experience but I, I but i i'm i guess to expand upon that point i am grateful and happy to see that 
the result, I think, of the information that's out there from podcasts like this and from Instagram and from social media that men are so much more, to speak to your word, confident. Like men are so much more confident in the choices they're making in stores. And, mm-hmm. and I think it is a result of having the information out there and making those choices that are more informed because, you know, they're seeing the options. And I would like to say, you know, to, not to round it back to cargo, but I think cargo was one of the early, and it may, have, I think, was ahead of its time where I think it did speak to a lot of different people. And I think it made these choices very available and showed different kinds of guys in different kinds of clothing. You could really easily hone in on what felt right for you or what was compelling to you. Um, and I think that's what I'm heartened by, you know, like in the store within the last year or two, like formal wear has been an area where, uh, for whatever reason, like that is now an area of great experimentation for men. I think a lot of it has to do with what's the offering out there. I think it's become compelling for designers to work on it because of the red carpet attention they can get. Mm. But I think given that vast variety and the more, um, varied choices out there in that arena i think men have become more experimental because of the variety of choice out there and i think that's really interesting whether it's you know maybe i don't want to wear just a black tuxedo maybe i want to wear a velvet evening jacket or maybe it's a jacquard jacket or maybe i'm going to wear a turtleneck rather than a than a white shirt and a bow tie and and that's such a specific area and microcosm of menswear but i think it's where you really um see the benefits of a market that's responding to uh, what their needs are, which is either, you know, attention on a red carpet or, you know, um, you know, a good sell through at a store and men responding to this more varied assortment and really recognizing, oh, there's opportunity here. This is really interesting to me. I can explore this and having those choices and seeing the information out there makes them more confident. Right. And you also have, um, you know, you had mentioned Instagram earlier you know, back way back in the day, Mm -hmm. you only had a very few select media outlets that could showcase looks and information. For sure. And now there's a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, noise, right? I mean, there are still the tried and true, the original, like, Mm -hmm. respected media outlets like GQ. And then you have, like, some guy with an Instagram account. (laughs) And a camera. (laughs) Yeah, and a camera who may be doing really cool things and some things that maybe some editors and some people have never thought of or like, oh, this, right. is, this is very interesting. But because of that, there's this noise of just, uh, and so when that happens, you, you may have somebody like, you know, there's a guy on Instagram that I follow. He is obsessed uh, with the 1970s. Everything that he wears <laughs> is that very 1970s. It, and it looks awesome. You know, it's like, uh, three days the condor type you know he's got huh. turtlenecks and tweed and, and he wears boot cut jeans all the time and cowboy boots and that's not something that i'm seeing too strong in the, in the media world and that's fine but i'm seeing that and so like i'm kind of also trying to look for that in other pieces and things that i'm like that i'm buying now mm-hmm. and so i have all these other you know influences that are just that are poking at me and it's it's really cool and i think Bergdorf, like I can go to Bergdorf and I can find things that are going to cater to all that different stuff. You know, like when you were talking about uh, evening wear, you mm-hmm. know, like Tom Ford is like the king of evening wear with just, you know, bizarre, you know, yeah, massive amazing. lapels, For Hollywood. Sure. Velvet. Yeah. Brocade. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't mean to, to ramble there, but that's just. No, yeah. but I think it's interesting you talk about it. like for me in the social media, I think the most vital part of that is credibility. Mm. Like I think, um, you know, the, a lot of people have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, and I think that's great. But for me, I think to have validation and to have, uh, you know, meaning, I think you have to be credible. Like, you know, there's exposure does not equal expertise. I agree. And um, I think you have to have some expertise if yeah. you're going to be out there espousing opinions. And I, I think that, like this guy, I'm going to exchange the information after this because now I'm really curious to oh, yeah, follow. Oh, he's awesome. But, you know, clearly he's committed to an era. He has invested his energy and attention to it, and he's credible. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, I love when people are expert or credible. I think that's uh, what I think is, is more and more as we're, you know, 
in the Instagram age and era, I think uh, you have to have credibility. Yeah. You have to have something to say and have something, and it's got to be backed up by, you know, experience or some sort of expertise. Well, I just want to uh, jump a bit to what you're doing at Bergdorf's right now. So mm-hmm. you talked about sell-throughs and stuff, and also well, <laughs> retail speak. Well, we won't get we won't get too nitty gritty in business, but yeah. the fact that of the stuff that you're you're working on, still mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Bergdorf is a business, mm-hmm. and it to me it is still you know you have like Bergdorf, you have Colette. Well, Colette's like basically gone now. R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. It's sad and you know, maybe Fred Siegel, but not really. I mean, I'm not going to throw shade. It's just like, it, it doesn't have the history that Bergdorf does mm-hmm. to me. And Bergdorf has launched so many huge and successful brands like, um, you know, Tom Brown. Mm-hmm. I know Bergdorf was one of the first accounts for Michael Bastion. Mm-hmm. There was all of that stuff. Um, what are the things that you've been seeing, you know, men really gravitate to right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's a, an exciting time in menswear, but for me, it's been exciting in menswear for the, you know, more than two decades I've been into it. It's, <laughs> it's always been compelling to me, but I think, you know, to speak to that, you know, the sort of era of the Instagram and how, you know, men out there right now are much more confident and they're taking, you know, risks and making informed choices. So I think that makes the marketplace really compelling and really right. interesting. And I think, um, you know, what's interesting to me at the store is, um, you know, we are a department store, but we sort of function as sort of a large specialty store and we have, you know, very distinct customers and very distinct floors. Yeah. You know, the, our third floor is very, very fast and, you know, the athletic influence and, you know, the streetwear influence and, and designers, you know, like John Elliott and Virgil Abloh and, and Jerry Lorenzo, you know, these guys are really pushing the needle as far as young men designer clothing and, and they are designers and this mm-hmm. that we we consider them designer collections. And so that third floor has gotten very, very fast. And that's been really interesting for me to see over the last couple of years. Um, Kith and Ronnie Feig, I think, has really, really changed the game. And we're, you know, grateful to have a partnership with him. And I, I think he's, again, a designer when I think people differentiate between streetwear and designer collections. Like, I, for me, there's no diff- differentiation. I mean, I think when you think about American design today, like, those guys right. are pushing that forward that's true um so you know like i think kith and ronnie sits very organically across the hallway from tom brown Mm. and right next to dries van noten and right next to virgil abloh and off-white i mean i think these conversations on that floor whether you know they're visual conversations and visual adjacencies to me they work in an incredibly organic way and and our customers compelled by them um and then we have you know on our second floor like really really amazing you know, luxe Italian tailoring, great yeah. high, you know, and, and also um, exclusive collections for, you know, Berluti, you know, obviously out of France, is, you know, adjacent to Ralph Lauren, you know, great American designer. But um, companies like Keaton and, and Cesare Attalini, you know, we have the captain of industry in our store and he is very interested and beautifully crafted right tailoring right and then we have our you know laura piana and brunella cuccinelli on one next to our own kind of private label brand which is very kind of luxe elevated sportswear yeah and so they are these kind of distinct environments um that i think create a really great exciting mix within the context of one store i mean there's a lot of different flavors and a lot of different interests but i think it also lends to, to your point earlier about kind of like really mixing and matching. Like we have a customer that, you know, is really loves Laura Piana. And when Kith, you know, was on the floor when, that, oh, really? when we opened that shop, he wanted to come up and look at it. And he loves Kith as much as he loves Laura Piana. And these guys are mixing them very seamlessly and in a very personal way. And I think that's what it speaks to is this ability to kind of create your own look in a very personal way that is a very organic mixture of what works for you. Right. You know, obviously with the guidance of, you know, these really talented sales associates we have. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of the service is, is having an, an informed and educated opinion, you know, and somebody's going to guide you through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's true. I, I think, you know, because of all the different designers, it's, it's can be a little bit, taxing and confusing as yeah. to know like what to look and what to do i mean it's i've 
I used to style for a bit, and I remember people that I would work with, they would basically just send me pictures. And it's like, I'd love to look like this guy, but I don't know if I could look like this guy. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, everyone always says, like, pull it off and that, like, goofy phrase. And I would always be like, well, if you superimposed your head on top of theirs, you know, would you still want to look like that? Like, some people, right, right. like, if you're, for some reason, if you're just, like, in your late 60s and in good shape, you can wear anything. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know, like, I saw a guy walking down the street, and he was wearing, like, the highest waisted jeans ever with these old, old, like, hiking boots and a lime green, uh, like, athletic, uh, like, top, like, hmm. almost like a fleece thing and a cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. But he was in his 60s, and he looked awesome. I figured if I did that, I'm not sure I would look that awesome. I mean, if I walk into your office doing that, you'd be like, okay, let's get started. Well, I also think it's about intention or an utter lack of intention. Mm, interesting. You know, I think it's, it's, I think when it's completely organic, I mean, I think I love the eccentricity of things like that when it's right. utterly just like following your own road. Yeah. But I, 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 I like when things have sort of a grounded natural nature to them. I mean, I, I think, you know, things should look like they belong on you and, and I, 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 I applaud effort and I appreciate effort. I think when, every time you walk out of the door, the first impression you're going to make is going to last for people. So I think I, I'm all about like making an effort, mm-hmm. but I also think that should feel natural and organic and, um, not costumey. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I hear you. Um, well, this is fantastic. This has been a huge <laughs> honor and a pleasure to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Thank is, you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add or mention before we, we start to wrap up here? I don't know. We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. No, this is fantastic. <laughs> you went through the entire... I'm a talker. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it so much. Well, Bruce, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was a huge pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming here. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Special thanks to Bruce Pass for coming on. Our theme music is by Tanlines. If you like this episode, there's plenty more to dive into. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify now, too. While you're at it, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. Feel free to get in touch with me or give me a shout on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you soon.